Welcome to Business Drivers, the podcast dedicated to helping you be a more effective digital leader. Each episode, we connect you to the people and ideas that will help you unlock new growth, both professional and personal. Business Drivers is presented by Farron, a Minnesota-based digital strategy and leadership consultancy that serves firms going through digital transformation. I'm your host, Jim Keen. Our guest for this podcast is Olivia Luderbach, Director of Strategy at Superhuman here in Minneapolis. This episode was a lot of fun because we got meta, which means I got to nerd out with a strategist about how strategists do strategy. It's not as obnoxious as it sounds. We covered some of the stuff you might expect, like briefs and why Olivia doesn't use them, but we got some interesting answers to those familiar questions. We talked about how the job of strategist is really to find the right problem to solve and how digital strategy is becoming ultimately a more holistic approach to business strategy overall. We also talked about the benefits of working with private equity-backed firms and the unique needs they've got. And we talked about how startups inside large orgs are different than other startups. Finally, we talk about the transition to strategy leadership versus being an individual contributor. This one was so good, even I listened to it twice. So thanks for tuning in. Hope you like this convo with Olivia. All right, Olivia, you are a strategist. How would you describe your job as a strategist to somebody that's never heard that job title before? I feel like I do this a lot to students. So there's kind of a student way and kind of a philosophy way. And to the student way, I would say strategy is all about asking the right questions to solve the right problems. And maybe that's actually my philosophical answer too, that the whole point is making sure that teams are aligned around goals, objectives, processes, uh, and outcomes before work even starts. I like the way that you start with making sure that you're asking the right question, because that gets at, you know, are you pointed at the right problem? It's hard to go to school to be a strategist. You know, there, there aren't bachelors of strategy. Is this the work that you thought you were going to be doing? Like, how did you get here into this role? Oh gosh, not at all. I didn't even know what strategy was when I started my first strategy job, to be totally honest. And I went to school for social work for two years, thinking that it was going to be all about working with individuals. And very quickly, I think, turned into what is the difference between depth and breadth in my skill set and how do I want to use that? So I switched to communications and journalism as a major about halfway through my time at St. Thomas and focused on rhetoric. That really meant I took courses like argumentation and advocacy. I did parliamentary debate. I did a whole lot of reading rhetorical criticisms and then writing them myself. And what I didn't know at the time is I was learning how to deconstruct persuasion. And then later I would work in constructing persuasion. (laughs) So I had no idea that that's what it was going to be, but I think that combination of human stuff and then sort of critical theory and communication studies came together as strategy in my own educational path. So in some ways, you've, you've kind of become a professional persuader, or at least a, a, a different sort of professional, is it rhetoric? Rhetorician? Yeah, rhetorician. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. Everything is persuasion. When you're doing the work that you're doing today, how much do you think about some of the earlier training that you got in rhetoric and persuasion and taking apart an argument and looking for the logic and seeking the fallacies? Is, is that something that comes back to you on a regular basis or is it just sort of natural now? 
I would say it's more natural now and or I have less time these days for that level of deep thinking and analysis. I wish I had more. So it probably manifests more in that natural way. But I would say it shows up more in life than than in work uh, in a cognizant way for me. And one of the things that I studied actually my senior year, um, it's it's weird to think about how long ago and also how not long ago this was, but police department public relations mm. in the wake of officer-involved shootings. And one of the rhetorical tactics that they use, we dissected with a tool called diectic analysis, I think is what it was called. And it basically is the use of, does somebody employ passive voice or active voice when they want to put aggression or blame on someone other than someone else? So kind of a weird way to explain it, but I see all the time in public relations and in public communication, the use of um, the officer discharged their weapon and Michael Brown was fatally wounded. Yeah. Use of passive voice because you cannot distance victim from aggressor farther than that using language. Yeah. And you can certainly employ language differently uh, for a different outcome or a different perception. Yeah. And by elevating the language, it makes it seem more official. And, you know, it, it's sort of quasi administrative and it, mm-hmm. and, it, and it creates separation from the humanity involved in the activity. Exactly. Language becomes a separator. It does. And and to bring it even back to something as tactical, maybe as a brand architecture or a worksheet or something, you know, in day to day like that, you see where political through lines maybe are or fault lines in an organization based on where we won't get specific or what we won't say in the direct way, but what we will talk around as sort of a vision, but we won't say something super specifically or super directly because we can't for reasons A, B, and C. And I'm not saying they're not valid, but language is a very interesting tool to see what's permanent and what's tricky. All right. So now I'm going to, I'm going to dive into the actual work because you just, as you're describing this, you're making me think you've either got to be really good at writing briefs or you are as a director of strategy. Are you one of those people that says, I don't like that brief, go back and rewrite it. I haven't used a brief in a year and a half, probably to be totally honest with you, which is maybe wild for interviewing a strategist, but one of the ways that I've been working right now with uh, my embedded client teams is more work sessioning than we are writing briefs necessarily. And I think they could be great tools for the way that we work now. I would actually like to explore that as I think about it in this moment, but the way that briefs have been a part of my historical strategy life is that they are a way to capture what a client is really saying and thinking and feeling and needing as more of a contractual kind of sign-off point Mm. between we're solving the right problem, correct? And the brief is a chance to align on that before we put any work around, you know, tactics or creative development around it. And I guess in the client relationships that I have right now, we're working on the definition of the brief itself and defining the problems we need to solve. So the brief, the brief has become less of a useful tool because I already know all of that information and I don't necessarily need someone to hand it over and agree with me on it. Okay. This is now turning into deep in the weeds, but super rich. So if I heard you right, I think 
you were suggesting that you haven't been using briefs in a while, mainly because of the way that you're working with your clients. And we'll get to that in a second. But also your, I don't want to call it the process, but your approach these days is to kind of get to the same sort of agreement that would otherwise be done in a brief in collaboration with your client. So you'll, you'll work it out to make sure that you're solving the right problem together with the client instead of the old way to do it, where the client would say, here's the brief. And if it didn't go well, you could always just say, well, the brief was bad. That's exactly right. And where I think briefs used to show up in my career is that they were a chance to ground down into the tactics that a client was asking for. For example, please do a campaign for us about this product launch. Here are the features and benefits. And we'd align on that. And my work streams have have gone upstream from there. So it's actually, what is the product and why does it matter before yeah. the conversation about what the campaign is? That makes sense. Because uh, I got a little bit of an understanding of the way that you as a strategist are working today. But what one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with you is because I, I don't know that many strategy leaders that are engaging with clients the way that you are. And I, I don't want to ask you anything that's proprietary about the way that you're working with your clients, but can you describe what is different about the way that you're engaging versus the way that a strategist typically engages at a typical agency? What's different about the way that you're working as a strategist now in collaboration with your clients? Certainly. So one of the things I have to say, I think about why we work differently with our clients that struck me as very obvious and dumb to have not realized it before, but makes all the sense in the world in retrospect, is that our clients are the full C-suite of executives now, and they used to just be CMOs. And I don't mean just as in, that's lame. I mean, just as in only or in yeah. its own work stream. Because I think when you're working with only one discipline, it's a little bit harder to move an organization as a unit and a little bit easier to do things in a vacuum. So I would say the biggest difference between how I used to work and how I work now is I'm accountable for business strategy that drives functions of every C-suite or discipline lead. And I used to be accountable for the functions that drive marketing. So how that works at, at Superhuman anyway is we've really aligned our services and our engagements with clients around inflection points that they're having in business growth. So some of my clients are, are really early on. They're startups. They are just ideas that aren't even startups yet. They're just a, a conceptualization of something. And we will work with them to research and validate ideas before they become businesses. We also work with businesses that are still building and scaling. So they're looking for funding. Maybe they started um, as a bootstrapped venture, but they need to be really focused in who and what they're going after and kind of keep testing the market, get investments, things like that. All the way up to companies that are on their second or third round of private equity investment, and they need to prove a level of traction that will either help them get sold to another private equity company. Maybe they IPO. Um, maybe they need to focus on organic and inorganic growth to really test product market fit and market penetration. So the milestones and the things that we're solving for feel very different than, again, a campaign 
in support of one of those business objectives because we're tackling the whole thing. Let me just sort of rewind. You've just described the way of working that I think every strategist that I've ever met wants to work. But, <laughs> but a lot of the strategists that I have met in my life are stuck in mar what are essentially Marcom shops. I really love my job. Well, I think that comes across. If I could replay what I think I just heard is like, you're being asked to solve business problems and the levers that you can pull are pretty much everything versus sort of the classic ad strategist was the, the choices that you were making, the strategic choices you were making were around the consumer, the insight, the message, and maybe the creative. Maybe if you're a lucky mm -hmm. media, but now you're, it sounds like you're being asked to look at, do we have the right product? Do we have the right business model? Are we going to market the right way? Is the pricing right? Is the experience correct? Um, do we have the right tech? You know, is the brand right? I mean, a holistic look at what do you need to do to get through the inflection point? That's exactly right. You are doing a great job of recapping what I'm <laughs> trying to articulate in retrospect. That's spot on. Was that an intentional choice by the team at Superhuman or was that just sort of the evolution that happened because of the talent that has been assembled there? A little bit of both. And I will say that we owe a ton of credit in terms of our learning and exposure to the later stage business models to really great partners at uh, Vista Equity Partners. So um, we have worked with them and some of their portfolio companies for a number of years now and um, have been able to connect with businesses at various stages of growth and development through that. They have some you know, wonderful teams and repeatable processes that we've been able to connect on and bring to market a number of different ways for portfolio companies. So in my first couple of years at Superhuman, learned a lot about private equity investment, different milestones that they experience in bringing something to market again, once it's grown or expanded or changed in some way. Yeah. And was able then to bring that to um, maybe the second half of my Superhuman chapter so far in startup work with Cargill's internal business development unit by going much earlier uh, into the business development work stream, so to speak, and, and bringing what I know about what will happen to what should happen now. Yeah. And you, you, start, you start building growth into the model early. Exactly. Based on what I understand of the work that you're doing with Cargill, it, it's a really amazing opportunity. It's a good example of how large corporations can venture and how working with the right partners can be a real accelerant for them. To the extent that you're able to, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing at Horizons with Cargill? And first of all, what is it and how are you and your team helping them? And again, you don't have to share any confidential stuff. So Horizons is a team within Cargill that builds standalone digital businesses. And they have been working for a number of years on doing digital innovation. And Cargill has been investing in this for a long time in different ways. And this, these last couple of years have employed some strategies and some mechanisms that look a lot like you know internal VC, basically, where they can take some measured risks, but also de-risk some of their investments into building businesses customer back that not only support the rest of the organization and in their core business, the ingredients that they sell, the other services that they offer, but actually start to be standalone business models that have 
you know, revenue, revenue generation capabilities with margins that are much different than classical or core business products. Yeah, it's super smart. It's a diversification play for sure. It's, it's a margin play for sure. It's also just a great way to explore complementary service offerings to the business. So can you talk about a couple examples of, of what might be out in the world from Horizon? I would love to. The, the first business that was sort of the guinea pig, I started working on it in 2019, I think, uh, is called Hot Take. And it is a consumer research tool for growing food businesses. So you think about a CPG company that really wants to get in at a um, big, you know, large market, like national distribution and grocery or something like that. And they really want to learn what are the people, who are the people and what are the products that they want to see from us in terms of product expansion or um, role in my life. And how can we do quick and agile research to understand what people want from us and um, be quickly evolving and developing our products? So Hotik is a survey tool that allows them to quickly connect with consumers and find out the answers to their burning questions in a fast and affordable way. So one example that I can talk about because it's a case study on our website is Raising Cane's was changing an ingredient recipe. And they wanted to make sure that people weren't going to try this new core product, taste or sense the difference in that recipe and stop coming back. They also were launching a new beverage offering um, using a diet sweetener and wanted to make sure that the taste uh, profile was the same. So they also used hot take with a QR code touch point with people going through the drive-through or ordering online to figure out how are people responding to this in real time in a small market test so that we can make smarter decisions about how we roll this out and how we change formula if it doesn't go well. Well, first of all, I love that because it's an example of a large company that's making the tool that they need to go faster. But I also have to believe that there are dozens of tools like that out there, everything from SurveyMonkey all the way down to food industries specific tools. Why, why did Cargill want their own? Or why did Horizons want their own? Was it, a, was it a revenue thing or was it a features and functionality thing or was it speed? It's all and none of those. And I'll start with the none, which is that it's actually a platform play because it enables so many other types of conversations to have with small and emerging food businesses about their biggest challenges. You can see how in the same way that unlocking a door you know, strategically about helping a client figure out, oh, you should do a campaign. And then you, of course, as an agency become someone who can deliver a campaign. When you figure out, gosh, the sweetener blend isn't working for you right now in this new beverage offering, it opens a lot of doors to be able to talk about what might you do differently and how might we be able to help you formulate a product. It might also open the door to a conversation about how you want to go to market and how you might get into grocery and how you might do in-home sampling, all of which are things that Hot Take right now is exploring as far as expansions to the platform. So I would say Yes, there are other business models uh, similar to it, but the food expertise in-house at a company like Cargill and the ability to really tailor and focus it to what a CPG company or a restaurant is looking for is immediate value and expertise. And over the long term, this is just one 
component of a much broader vision, I think, for how to serve small and emerging food businesses. So what did that experience teach you about strategy overall? You know, I, I would imagine that you learned a bunch of new things working on something like that, including a deeper appreciation for your skills as a strategist. What have you, what, what have you learned about yourself through that? I have learned to let go in ways I never knew that I could from how perfect or buttoned up something should be. And in part, that's because when you're doing venture building and you're starting from nothing and validating and invalidating hypotheses all the time, you can't create a full-blown commercial strategy because you'll uncover a variable that breaks the hypothesis. You can't create a full-blown full blown brand because you'll realize that B2B buyers are more important than B2C users in the first expression of creative, and you'll have to start over. So I've learned to degrade everything that I do gracefully and make it more applicable to the stage and the need in ways that I may have been more precious in the past. I think I'm going to put degrade gracefully on a t-shirt. I'm going to start selling that to, <laughs> to digital strategists. The UX term, isn't it? Isn't that where it started? I don't know. There, there's your side hustle. Um, so the idea of letting go and recognizing that the choices that, and the questions that you need to ask and the level of precision that you're going to be able to get to um, will never be where you ultimately want it to be. Is that part of sort of the cultural objectives of having an internal incubator if you're a big mammoth firm like Cargill? Like at some point you just got to move? I think so. And I, I will give them a ton of credit for being willing to degrade gracefully maybe some of the same perfection that they would like from other types of business too. I mean, truly going as far as can we use, you know, the, the G suite and have people using different types of like web hosting tools, right. Versus what an enterprise customer is going to need and the types of hurdles that those put in place when you're doing startup work, like just the entire, everything has to degrade gracefully and everything has to be considered um, carefully as a fit for purpose tool and yeah. a fit for purpose process. So if it's meant for enterprise scale, that probably doesn't mean it's going to work for a venture in its third month of existing. Yeah. How have you learned about sort of speed to decision or speed to clarity by working with within a, a venture studio, as opposed to when you were being engaged on sort of client projects at a at an agency, you know, I, I would imagine as a strategist, there's, there's a desire to want to keep asking questions until you have a higher confidence in your point of view, but that risks speed. So how have you found that right balance of speed to action versus, you know, thinking it all the way through? I think the key to that has really been just building trust and vulnerability in client relationships, because that manifests in both sides of my work, a more traditional quote unquote client engagement and also a one with this horizons team where it's very staff augment. And I've learned to say things like, if I know that we feel 90% confident about our go-to-market strategy, then I'm going to invest 90% in how we articulate what the brand looks like, for example, or our, our, the development of our marketing funnel. If we're not confident, then I'm going to run an experiment that looks like this. 
Yeah. And, and helping people, I think, understand what I'm going to do with the confidence and why it matters for the investment we will collectively make and when has been a really good tool in figuring out exactly what you asked about. How are we able to make those choices and how are we able to let go when we need to let go? As you're talking and as you're giving your examples of working with PE-backed firms, in some cases, small venture-backed firms, you're working with um, a venture studio inside of a large organization. I would assume you're doing a lot of iterative, maybe lowercase a agile work, maybe uppercase a agile work. How are you learning about making strategic choices in an agile iterative environment like that? I think one of the tools that has been the most useful in that context is to really build trust with teams and explain what I'm going to need to do with our level of confidence and what the implication in our collective investment is going to be. So if we're not confident that we have the right target audience, we'll start with a smaller experiment, but I need to be really clear with the teams about the consequences that that could present down the line. If we're super confident about something and we think it's really time to invest in a certain core component of the product because it's a two-way door decision, we know that that's going to be important down the line no matter what, then that's a tool I think that also helps us say, we're, we're confident in the grounding of this, so let's invest in it. And when we're not, let's make careful and measured experiments with clear KPIs and metrics um, to look at that and see how we might do things differently. So really being honest about what my next steps would be in a hypothetical, this is great, we're right, and also a hypothetical, it's not, we're wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a question that might be a distraction, and we can just say, not interested in covering that, but are you familiar with the concept of emergent strategy? How, how, how strategy sort of comes out of iterative explorations versus a top-down sort of hypothesis-driven strategy? Recently, someone sent me an article and I saw, it must have been Nobel Collective, I think, that I read it on their website and it was about coming up with it in workshops and things like that. But I, I don't know more than having heard that and thinking it was interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious about agile orgs, uppercase A agile orgs that are doing their planning on a monthly or in some cases, bi-weekly basis where they're making choices about resource allocation. They're making choices about communication and in some cases, features and functionality on, let's just call it a monthly basis. And they're letting their strategy come to life as the opportunities show up or not versus saying, all right, we've got a three-year plan. We've got a one-year plan that's going to break down into the quarters. Just curious how that, whether that's something that you've come across or not. I think you're putting a name around something that I didn't know we were doing. And I'm really excited to look it up after this conversation and figure out how we might discuss even operationalizing that more intentionally. I think I thought probably that we were just changing our one-year plan every month and a half. <laughs> but if you look at it as, no, this is intentional, this is emergent strategy, I can see how that might even feel permissive or freeing to change the mindset around it a little bit. You know, that could just be mumbo jumbos, you know, uh, strategist babble for like, I don't know, we're going to figure it out. Which is fine. Yeah, yeah. You're now a leader of P 
people, you know, you're, you've got a team of strategists around you. So first question would be, what's been an important lesson that you've learned going from an individual contributor into a, a leader of people about getting good at the work? It's funny. I've needed a lot of diagrams to think about this exact question and also how to work with team members on it. And one of the best ones that I've found is from Ogilvy in the late 80s. And the graph actually looks like concentric circles or a spiral. And it starts with the tools in the center and expands from that to methodologies and expands from that to processes and from that to deliverables and from that to business challenges and scope creation, basically. And I think that framework of imagining strategy as getting good at the tools and information gathering, turning them into insights, turning them into useful insights, turning those into valuable components in an overall product architecture or project architecture, and then thinking about how do you become someone who knows how to employ all of those things to design a project for a client's business problem has really been how our team thinks about growth. Mm. And so key milestones sound a lot like you're moving from information gathering to insights development, or you're moving from running the strategy deliverables in this project to running strategy perspective in this project. And thinking of those as big growth moments for people on the team, I think has been really illuminating and understanding how you move from the center of that circle to the whole solar system of strategy, if you will. I need to read that. I would love to follow up on that. One of the reasons I, I wanted to hear you talk about it a little bit is that there's a strategist that we both know that is one of the best that I've ever worked with. And I, I always wonder, like, how would that guy teach somebody to be half as good as he was? Like if he had to kind of sort of break down his algorithm of how he does what he does, how would he teach somebody how to do it? Because it was a, a beautiful balance of science and art. And he was one of the, he's one of the most curious guys I know, but he's also one of the best that can get to clarity on what decisions need to be made. And I've always wondered how somebody like you teaches people around you how to do what you do. Like, have you cracked the code on anything yet? I'm like, all right, I know how to teach somebody how to do this part. You should kick me off your podcast if I ever say I've cracked the code on anything because <laughs> I don't. Was not, and I don't that wasn't I a trick question. <laughs> I, 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 wasn't um, trying to, I wasn't trying to lure you into a trap. That's okay. No, I, I don't think I've cracked the code on it, but I think I've had opportunities to practice it with enough people now that I feel pretty good about the basics, knowing also that it has to be an individual endeavor. You know, you have to take in somebody as a whole person when you think about their, their role on the team and how they see themselves even in the work uh, to understand how each of those milestones are going to look. Somebody might have a much longer information to insights phase because they came into strategy through account management and they really want to learn how to do this type of thinking. Mm -hmm. Somebody else might be a natural born problem solver who is insightful by nature and they never had to break down the steps of how they got there. I think you have to bring that in or it, it will never work. Um, and the things that our team has learned is, is really to, to lean into those individual strengths and to understand the makeup of any team or project based on 
all of those very three-dimensional uh, perspectives mm. of somebody. I, I just, I admire people that can be clear enough in coaching on how to do the craft of what you do well. It, it's just, it, it's really cool to see when there's somebody who's a clearly good at it, but then can also teach somebody how to be good at it. Cause I, I think, how do you, how do you teach curiosity is really hard. How do you teach clarity? That's really hard. So kudos. For Those are really out. hard. Thank you. We also have a, a strategy team growth matrix that we use a lot. So we talk about all the different dimensions of being a strategist, yeah. how those manifest by level and really use it as kind of a roadmap to career growth, if you will. So lots of things that show up in the work that can also show up in ourselves and our own development. You, you mentioned, I think his name is Bud Cadell and NOBL, Noble, Nobel. He used to be part of a team at a group called undercurrent, I think. They have a really good competency development model for their strategists that they shared probably seven or eight years ago. I'll see if I can get that to you. You've got a really cool job. You've landed in an amazing spot where I think most strategists would agree that you're being given the, the full palette to work with, which is rare. What does a career path look like for a strategist now? Um, realizing yours is unique, how would you talk to other folks on their way up about the career opportunities available to them? It's funny because everything is called strategist now. Yeah. And so I think that's confusing to a lot of people. And frankly, sometimes I get confused about if my title is strategist, what am I even a strategist about? if I don't have a modifier before or after, um, because you can be everything if you find yourself in a lucky spot in the way that I am right now. But sometimes people really are drawn to specialization or that's the way that they have to start. We talk a lot about the strategy solar system and all of the disciplines that are either influencers or really key inputs to how you might think about strategy in an agency. So if I'm in an early conversation with somebody young in their career uh, about strategy, I love to talk about who you might connect with in analytics, who you might connect with in digital strategy or SEO, who you might connect with in um, market research and ethnography and anthropology and things like that that become either foundational skill sets or tools that you then employ as a part of a strategy career. Because I feel like unless you know you want to specialize, those can be really valuable building blocks into maybe the bigger picture or the broader use case for how you might take insights from an SEO analysis, for example, and build you into a person who uses that as a tool. Mm. Yeah. So start from one sort of core strength and then build out from there um, is what I think I'm hearing you say, something like that. Yeah, especially when I, I, my first job was in market research, doing in-store intercepts and moderating online ethnographies for CPG products, actually, believe it or not. And I remember feeling really unsatisfied that my job stopped at the insights and implications slide in the presentation. Yeah. And I wanted to work on the team that would do something with the research. So even though I started with an input, I was so focused on the outputs and the outcomes 
but it was so important to understand the from the you know practitioner perspective how do you design the inputs to make the outcomes what they're supposed to be so i do tell young strategists that a lot or young in their career strategists a lot is to start with a place that you you are familiar with a tool that strategists use and you could build yourself into the broader perspective mm. of how those come into play so we talked a little bit about what you've learned about teaching people how to do what you do, what have you learned or what, what has been sort of some personal growth as a leader, as you've stepped into that role as a team leader, you know, cause it's a, it's a different mode than being an individual contributor. What, what have you learned? My gosh, so much vulnerability, truly. I see my own weaknesses in really new ways when I can also see things that I maybe I'm working on show up in other people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's really motivating actually to talk about how those might feel like weaknesses and how to make sure that other people can think of them as what is me and what is strategy and what is our team and what is our company and how to help people navigate each of those variables and uncover their own personal style along the way. I'm really fortunate to have uh, Genevieve on the team at Superhuman, who is a lot like me as a person. But when we went through Strengths Finder and Disk Analysis and some of those other tools, we found ourselves on very opposite sides of the wheel. And it's funny to think about how can we work so similarly and act and speak and think so similarly, but have such different foundations as people. And it prompted us to do what we called an expectation setting session. <laughs> where we each went through some of the normal bones, I guess, of a working together process on a project or in a managerial relationship and talked about what do you expect of me and what do you not expect of me? And we uncovered some really interesting things in our differences that we maybe wouldn't have known. Like, I wanna know vulnerably what feels scary and hard so that I can normalize that of course it feels scary and hard based on where you are, right? Or I want you to tell me when I'm being unclear because I would rather stop talking earlier and start over than have confused you for seven minutes or something like that. So I've learned a ton about my own kind of self-analysis and working with other people on that in an open way. I appreciate the point on vulnerability. Uh, you know, for what it's worth, I, I grew up in a generation where you couldn't show any of that, especially as a leader. You'd and, and as a result, I think I wait, I don't want to say wasted, but too much of my career was spent essentially bluffing, you know, trying to, trying to communicate that I, I had it figured out when in fact I didn't, you know, going back to something you said earlier, like I actually thought you could crack the code. <laughs> I, I thought that there were codes to be cracked. And I, I thought I would be one of those people that could do it. And I thought other people had cracked it. And I, I was scared that I was the only one that hadn't cracked the code. And then it I really realized it looks like other people have. Oh yeah. And, and then you sort of realize like, oh man, nobody's cracked the code. They're all full of shit. Nobody's got this figured out. We're all making it up <laughs> every day, every minute as we go. And it's okay. And it'll be fine. There's only a few decisions that can't be reversed. And I didn't figure that out till too late because I wasn't willing to be vulnerable. So it's cool that you got that figured out early. So there's a question I typically ask at the end of these what is your favorite non-work book or podcast that you would recommend? 
favorite non-work book or podcast. I'm not looking at my bookshelf right now. So there's probably something really inspirational that I'm going to miss because it's not top of mind. But one that I'm in the middle of right now uh, is called Managing Transitions. And it sounds like it's about death or hormonal changes and it's not. Um, it's about personal growth, but also organizational psychology. So I might be breaking your rule about it not being work-related, but to me, it feels personal. Um, it's all about how we experience change as people. And I think as a strategist personality, I love to plan ahead for change and plan my own roadmap relative to that change, which can be uncomfortable when you find yourself in situations with variables that you had no idea were around the corner or things that you're drawn to or care about that you didn't realize you would be drawn to or care about. And I am really looking to learn about the theory around change and transition yeah. so that I can be a more fluid person in situations like that, not knowing what's around the corner, but embracing that. So um, it's written by a guy who has passed away and his wife manages his estate and they just did their 25th anniversary, but super um, incredible reviews on Amazon of people whose lives it has changed, not in a self-help way, in a very kind of theoretical and applicable way. So I'm excited to get further into it. Nice. Well, Olivia, thank you so much. I learned a bunch. This is really cool. And it's great to see talented people land in spots that are going to really push them in an exciting way. And it sounds like you're in a great one. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Business Drivers presented by Farron. Find us at hellofarron.com to learn more about the work we do, sign up for our newsletter, and find articles and resources to help you grow as a leader. Or find us on Twitter at hellofarron or on LinkedIn. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend. It's the best way for us to grow our audience. We'd love to reach more people with the work that we're doing. And if you have ideas or advice or feedback or complaints, Please reach out to us on Twitter or send us an email at bizdrivers at hellofarron.com. That's B-I-Z-D-R-I-V-E-R-S at hellofarron.com. Until next time, this is Jim Keen saying thanks.